so today's reading is found on page 1020 in your church Bibles. It's under the heading of the Last Supper. Here we go, down at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and by one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would, be, it would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given it thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. When he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my, this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. My name's Dave, and for those of you who don't know me, the words of that last song really do touch on our, our message this morning. And I have to say also what um, Ian said after he read our verses this morning essentially captures the entire sermon. So if you want to leave now, <laughs> please don't. Please don't. <clears throat> it's brilliant to be back with you in, in Mark's gospel this morning. Um, as you know, we're looking at Mark 14 and verses 12 to 26. And in many ways, when we read this passage, it's really easy to think, I've heard this one before. See, we often come back to this and to its sister passages when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, don't we? But it doesn't matter, does it, how many times you read a passage in the Bible. The astounding thing is, every time you come back to a passage, you can find something new. There's still something new to consider, to see. And that's the beauty of God's living word. It's not the newspaper. It's not what we see on the BBC website. It's God's living word. But these are familiar words. And I'm sure many of us understand the symbolism of the bread and the cup. And I'm sure many of us understand that phrase, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It'd be better if they had not been born. But there's still so, so much to unpack in these verses. And as I read and I prayed for inspiration for this morning, one thing that really stood out for me so clearly, and clearly stood out for Ian as well, and it's something I want to make clear for us all this morning too, is that Jesus was a man with a purpose. 
And as we go through this morning, I want you not just to understand that, but I really want you to understand that that is good news for all of us here. I'd like to look at these verses this morning to understand what's going on, explain why it shows that purpose I talk about, and what it means for those of us sat here this morning, on these red chairs, on this Sunday, what does it mean for us? So firstly, let's look at what's going on in the passage. I'm going to do a really whistle-stop tour through the verses themselves. So starting at verse 12, it tells us that this is the first day of one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar. This feast, as we know, is dripping with symbolism for what's about to happen. Because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's customary to sacrifice a perfect lamb, sound familiar, in order to save people from death. The Jews at this time, they were celebrating what had been done in their past, but they were about to see it fulfilled in the very near future as well. And in a much, much more significant way. And so knowing that this was an important feast, this was their Christmas dinner in some ways. Knowing that this was their important feast, Jesus' followers, they're keen to celebrate with him. And so they ask, where are we going to eat our Passover feast, Jesus? Because they wanted to eat together. As I say, this was an important feast. They wanted to sit together, eat together, enjoy this together, and remember God's faithfulness to their ancestors together in the company of their nearest and their dearest. And in answer to this question, where are we going to eat our Passover feast? Jesus sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem with, on the face of it, some pretty vague instructions. He says, go into Jerusalem and find a man carrying a jar of water. Now that's a little bit vague. And when you consider this, it's even more vague. The population of Jerusalem is estimated at that time somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people. It's quite a lot of people. It's a lot more than are here this morning. But at festival times, the Jews would travel back up to Jerusalem, wouldn't they? They'd trek from a long, long way away to come to Jerusalem, to come to the temple to celebrate. So that 30 to 50,000 people, again, estimates put it at about 80 to 100,000 people would have been milling around Jerusalem during this week. So even though they were told, actually, this man will meet them, it's still quite a tall order to find someone carrying some water in amongst 100,000 people. They had to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing when he gave this command. And when they meet this man, the disciples were instructed to follow him and go to a house that he enters, or the house that he enters. And in verse 14 it says, Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus had now asked his disciples to go into the city, find one specific man in a hundred thousand, follow him to a house, the house of someone they've probably never met, And ask that person, that house owner, where's the room you have for us to eat our Passover meal? And then in verse 15, Jesus tells them that the house owner will simply show them a large, furnished, ready room for them to eat their Passover feast in. Sorry, prepare their Passover feast in. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone gave me instructions like that, I'd have a few doubts in my head. Go into a city, find one person, follow them, go to a house you've never, ever been to, someone you've never met, and say, where's my room? This isn't Airbnb, remember. This is a very, very strange request. 
I'd be thinking to myself, how would this house owner even know to have a room ready? Would he have cleared out all the things that he's dumped in that room because it's a spare room and, you know, just trying to tidy the house? Would it even be the right sort of room for what we need? Would it be big enough? Would there be enough chairs? How is this guy going to know this? And if we jump to verse 17, I know I'm jumping a verse here, but it starts by saying, only later did Jesus arrive. So they went to a stranger's house to ask them, can we have your room for our Passover meal? And they didn't have Jesus with them. Now that's significant because Jesus would have been a famous face in Jerusalem at that point. And so if he'd gone with the disciples to ask this favour of this man, they probably would have been a little bit more comfortable because Jesus had that celebrity status. People would have wanted to welcome him into their homes and it would have probably been much easier, would have felt much easier to persuade someone to give up their room. But Jesus wasn't with them. Verse 17, he arrived later. But then back to verse 16, and this is what Ian highlighted. It's what's highlighted in my own Bible. Verse 16 tells us that, lo and behold, everything happened just as Jesus told them. They met the jar-carrying man. They got to the house. The owner showed them a room, his guest room, and it was ready for them to make preparations. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Go and follow these instructions and everything is just as Jesus said. But it must have taken faith to follow those instructions. But it's good to know that faith was rightly placed, isn't it? So everything looks good. They get on with their Passover feast. And then in the midst of this celebration, and as Dav said, this was a celebration, we get to verse 18. And verse 18 says, While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is a very American phrase, but it's one that absolutely fits here. Jesus has just dropped a truth bomb on that room. On the assembled gathering, because he says to them truly, which means, make no mistake about this, this isn't a joke, I'm not messing around. One of you in this room is going to betray me. Now betray, what does betray mean? It's an interesting word. Betray means to expose to danger by giving something away to the enemy of that person. One of you is going to do that to me, Jesus says. I can imagine that that would have stopped the conversation going on in the room. There would have been a pin drop silence. Think about it. If we were having one of our church lunches and one of the elders stands up, everyone, one of you is going to betray me. You'd stop, wouldn't you? You'd be a little bit shocked. That's a harsh, scary thing to hear someone say and to hear Jesus say would have been even more shocking and scary. Verse 19 goes on to say that they were all saddened by what Jesus had said, which means they definitely accepted that it was true. And then they all move on to ask, is it me? Then Jesus declares an even more shocking fact as we move into verse 20. He states that it's going to be one of his 12 closest followers that will betray him. This is a proper betrayal. It's not one of the groupies, one of the hangers-on. 
This is one of the people that Jesus had shared his food, his time, his life with. And they were going to turn upon him. Shocking? Yes. Nowhere near as astounding as what we see in verse 21. The next verse, 21, says that the Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. Jesus not only knows that one of his closest followers is about to betray him, he's going to let it happen. I can imagine at that point in the room, shock will have turned to confusion. Why would you do that? You know it's going to happen, why would you not stop it? But Jesus makes it clear after that that this betrayal is not going to be forgotten. His betrayer is going to be subject to woe and to misery. Such misery that his betrayer will wish they'd never been born. That's a harsh, harsh thing to be said by the creator of life, isn't it? You'll wish you'd never been born. But he was right. If we go to chapter 27 of Matthew, I'm not going to go to the verse, but if you look at chapter 27 of Matthew, we see that Judas suffered such guilt that he tried to give that bribe back to the officials and then he hung himself. And I don't think his misery really ends there, does it, at all? You see, that man's name is universally known as a name of a traitor. I'd imagine in this room, we all know a John. We all know a Peter, we all know a Matthew. Most people know a Dave as well. But who knows a Judas? Who knows anyone who's even considered calling their child Judas? Exactly. I didn't think about it when Barney was born. No one calls their child Judas. That man's misery, that man's shame continues. His name is eternally known as a traitor. It would have been better if he'd not been born. The meal moves on. And we get to this familiar part of the Lord's Supper where Jesus actually shows them the symbols of what he's about to do and what it means. Firstly, he takes some of this unleavened bread. And unleavened bread was, in a sense, a symbol in Jewish culture for something pure. The yeast represented sin, but there was no yeast in this bread. This bread was without sin. And he breaks it. He breaks this pure bread and gives it to his disciples, to his followers in that room. And as he does this, he declares something which, again, would have been really strange for them to understand at that time. Handing them bits of bread, he says, this is my body. Jesus essentially takes something that symbolises purity, something without sin. He breaks it, he shares it amongst everyone, and then declares that this is my body. And then we move on to verse 23. At some point after that, Jesus picks up a cup of wine. He gives thanks to God for it. And as he had done with the bread, sorry, he gives thanks as he'd done with the bread, and then he shares it amongst everyone, declaring this in verse 24. Verse 24 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He says, This is my blood. The blood, the life force, the very thing that kept him alive, that coursed through his veins, was poured out for many. Poured out's a significant phrase for these guys, the Jewish people, because it harks back to what we call the drink offerings in Jewish custom. 
The Jewish people would give literally an offering of the best of their wine and it would genuinely be poured out before the altar as a worship to God, as an expression of giving their best to God and not keeping it for themselves. Jesus was giving a symbol to those celebrating that Passover meal with him, that he was giving the best of himself by saying he would pour out his blood. In fact, he was giving his all as he poured out his blood and pouring it out for many. And he was doing it to seal a binding deal. This covenant that he speaks of in verse 24. Now some translations of the Gospel of Mark have the word new before the word covenant. I don't think our one does here. Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, but this deal, this deal was a new one. It signified a change, a cataclysmic change, a massive change. And we'll come back to that change in a bit. And then we move on to verse 25, and Jesus gives what can only be described as a statement of hope. He says that he won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it anew in the kingdom of God. Why is that a statement of hope? Because Jesus tells us that God's kingdom is coming. A kingdom that's ruled by a royal, regal, perfect king is coming to replace this broken world. And then finally, Dav touched on this earlier, we see that they get to uh, verse 26. And they sing a song. And they leave. Which is slightly strange, isn't it? There's been such shock, such confusion. And then they sing a song and they leave. And I thought to myself as I read this, that doesn't seem the right reaction to what you've just heard or what you've just gone through in the last however many hours that was. And then I thought, what do we do at the end of a service? What are we probably going to do? In fact, I've got Dav's plan here. Yep. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a closing benediction as well. But we sing a song and we leave, don't we? And it struck me, actually, it's not about forgetting what you've heard before, singing the song, and that being the bookmark at the end of what they did there. And it's the same for our services. That's not the bookmark to end our service and we go about the rest of our lives. The teaching that we get here, the teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples, the truths he spoke, they were meant to be lasting truths. They were meant to stick in the hearts of these people. It wasn't sing a song, go. In whistling through those verses, we see that Jesus did everything he did on that day on purpose. He did it on purpose to teach them. And as I mentioned before, as I read this passage more and more, I start to see that everything in here was intentional, was planned, and was on purpose. So my first heading this morning, I'm being economic with my words. This was on purpose. All of it. If there wasn't some prior thinking and a, a plan playing out in the big and the small details of this, it wouldn't have happened. Consider again verse 13. How did that man carrying the jar of water know that he had to meet two people? How did he know what they'd look like? How did he know where they'd be? There's four gates into Jerusalem. 
How did he know where they would be amongst that crowd of 100,000 people? And that 100,000 people, they weren't all sort of standing still, were they? They're milling around doing that Christmas Eve, got to go and buy the turkey and some carrots type shopping to get ready for the Passover festival. It's a hectic time in the middle of Jerusalem. So how did he know who to meet, where to guide them, unless something had guided him? He would not have stood a chance. And as I said earlier, how would the owner of that house know to have his guest room clear? How would he know to have it ready? And yet it was ready. Verse 16, as I said before, tells us that even though the disciples were given these slightly strange instructions, everything, everything was just as Jesus had told them. There had to be a plan. By Jesus' divine power, the Lord must have orchestrated this. And he was totally in control of it all. That's impressive again, isn't it? But that pales into insignificance when we look at verse 21. I'm skipping down a bit here, but verse 21. Having told the disciples that someone will betray him, Jesus says that he will go just as it had been written. No one plans to be betrayed, but Jesus told them this has already been foretold. It's foretold that he would be betrayed. It was foretold that he would go ahead and follow this plan. Jesus was a man totally in control, not just of that meal, not just of that day, but of how he would be betrayed. And that shows us two things. Firstly, nothing is beyond the control of our Lord. And secondly, it shows us that he was willing to follow a plan like this, to be betrayed, even though it cost him everything. And then we get to yet again another amazing verse. Yes, I've already read it, but let's read it again. Verse 25. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus' perfect plan was not just about how they would spend that day. He had a long-term plan in action that would have a life-changing effect on everyone in that room. But verse 25 tells us that the plan doesn't even end there, does it? This wasn't a planned suicide mission. The cross could look like that on the face of it. If we look at Acts 2 and verse 23, just considering the cross, it says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That was God's deliberate plan to save. And in that plan, wicked men, they put Jesus to death on a cross. But it's not the end of the plan. You see, we read the next verse, Acts 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. The plan was always that Jesus would give himself, but the plan was always that Jesus would rise and live again in God's kingdom as our saviour. And that's what verse 25 in this passage this morning tells us. 
Jesus' mission to earth was completely planned. There was no mistake in what he did, in the fact that he suffered, in the fact that he died, in the fact that he has returned back to glory in eternity. It was all on purpose and planned. Everything we see here. Why is that good to know? Well, it means that when Jesus says something, we can be confident it will happen. Because everything we've seen, the evidence here, we've seen that everything he said would happen. And that means when we see verses like this, this is a comfort Jesus gave to the disciples just after the sister passage to our passage this morning. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you there to be with me that you also may be where I am. There was absolute intent in everything Jesus did. Nothing was and nothing is out of his control. So we can trust him when he says amazing things like those words on the screen. He's preparing a place in eternity in his father's house for us if we trust in him. We will be there with him when he drinks again of the fruit in his father's kingdom. Everything Jesus did was planned, was on purpose. So much of it was predicted many, many years before he was born. In fact, I'm not actually sure how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. One estimate puts them at around 300 or so. But one thing we do know is that from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus has a plan to rescue. And we can trust in that plan because we see everything is as he says it would be. It's interesting, though, to talk about the fact that he did all this on purpose without talking about the why. Why did Jesus come to earth and follow this plan? What was he up to? What was he trying to do? And I think that question is probably the second most important question a human being can ever ask. I'll come back to the first most important one later. But let's look at the answer to that question. Why did Jesus do what he did? I've skipped slides. <laughs> anyway. So the Lord Jesus, he gave up his existence in heaven. He gave up perfect unity and peace in eternity, reigning as the Lord of all to follow a plan, a plan with a purpose. And we see that plan and that purpose explained in verses 22 to 25 of our passage. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Firstly, Jesus came for his body to be broken. The bread here is a symbol of that body being broken. That's why we break bread. Jesus had to be damaged. He had to be broken. He had to suffer pain and anguish and punishment for a purpose. And that purpose is explained in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live 
for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Lord Jesus completed his planned mission on purpose with the intention of bearing our sins upon himself on that cross. And in doing so, he took the punishment for everything that we deserve because of our own sins. He did this that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. And he did it so that we could be free and justified. He did it so that punishment could be poured out in a just way on someone. And he did it so that didn't have to be us because we couldn't take it. Although we deserved it, the verses say we were like sheep going astray. And we all are like sheep going astray. We've all wandered off. We've all ignored God. We've all ignored his will in our lives. We've all broken his commands. We've all been selfish. We've all lied. We've all been greedy. And that means we've thrown away our relationship with God. But that breaking of the bread, that's not where Jesus' plan ended, was it? So what's the second part of Jesus' purpose? Verse 24. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is that binding deal I mentioned earlier. Jesus was sealing a deal with the blood of this covenant. And that deal was that if we declare with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord... And if we confess our sins to him and humbly ask that he would have mercy upon us, then he will be faithful to forgive us and justify us and sanctify us by his death upon the cross. And that means that when he comes again, we will be safe with him, hidden in him, in his father's kingdom. That was the purpose of this new deal, this new covenant. But it's based on him The Lord Jesus wiping the slate clean for us. He wiped our slate clean despite what we had done. And that's a good deal to be offered, isn't it? We gave him sin and he gave us life. I'd say that's a fantastic deal to be offered. And it brings me back to the first most important question a human being could ever ask. I think the first most important question a human can ever ask is this, Lord God Almighty, I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But by your grace, shown through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, will you have mercy upon me and restore me to you? And what we see from this passage today and the purpose that Jesus had was to make the answer to that question from the Lord God, yes, I will. Yes, I will. We can trust that that will happen because everything we see that Jesus did was happened on purpose. It was intentional. It was meant to be. And because of that, because we can trust that the answer to that question is yes, I will set you free, we can rejoice in things like this. John 3 Chapter John 3, verse 13 says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have 
eternal life in him. An amazing thing to trust in, to focus on. So the Lord Jesus, he gave himself very, very deliberately to set us up, to free us and to restore us to him in heaven. He did what he did on purpose, for a purpose. And if we grasp that, then the final thing we need to consider is, what's the purpose of me knowing all of this? Because there is definitely a purpose in us knowing this. It wouldn't be in the Bible if we didn't need to know it. You see, in Luke 22, the sister passage to this one, we're told to do this act in remembrance of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is in remembrance of him. But I think this passage calls us to remember a few other things as well, important truths that I'd like us to take from this morning. The first and the most fundamental one is that Jesus gave his body and in doing so made a new covenant for us. He said he poured his blood out for many and that many includes you if you trust in him. It's a fantastic thing to remember if you do trust in him this morning. But if you don't, if you don't know what you believe, if you don't know who you're trusting or what this means, then please can I ask you, the one thing I want you to remember this morning is that you just need to trust in him. It means asking that question that I said is the first most important question a human can ask earlier. And there are things that come after it, but firstly and foremost, you have to trust in the Lord and you will be saved from the consequences of your sin and restored to the love of God because of what Jesus did. You don't need to remember your sins. You don't need to dwell on the past. You need to look forward to where you are headed. The second truth we need to remember from the passage this morning is that we can trust what Jesus asks us to do according to his perfect will. Those slightly bizarre instructions, go into Jerusalem, find a man with a jar of water and follow him to a house. They seemed a bit of a long shot on the face of it, didn't they? It's a really vague thing to be told. I can't even go to Tesco and buy something without at least texting me a picture of what it is. These guys were told to go into Jerusalem and find a man they'd never seen. But everything happened as Jesus had told them. Jesus is true to his word. And that means that every promise in his word we can hold to. That means we can take hold of just some of these fantastic promises on the screen. Appreciate the words are a bit small, but he will forgive us. 1 John 1 9. The devil will flee from us if we resist. James 4 verse 7. He will grant us wisdom. I definitely need that. James 1 verse 5. He will give us rest. I think we all need that occasionally. And we will produce fruit for him if we remain in him. John 15 verse 5. So when we face confusing situations, when we're asking, God, why have you put me here? Why have you allowed this? When we're feeling that we've been left to our own devices, it's for those days that we must remember all of these amazing promises and many, many more. Go and Google it. Because all of those promises in God's word, all will be fulfilled for you if you trust in him.
slightly less encouragingly, but still as important, this, morning passage, this morning's passage reminds us of the consequence of betraying the Lord. It's a powerful thing, isn't it, to hear Jesus say, woe to the one that betrays me, because bear in mind, who can bring the most woe in existence? Him. It's a powerful thing to say, it's better if you've not been born than if you betray me. And I really wonder how Judas felt as Jesus said those words in that room. I imagine that actually Jesus was looking around but fixed his gaze upon Judas at that point. Just in that moment to say, woe upon that man that betrays me. And whilst I'm intellectually curious to understand how Judas felt in that particular moment, what I definitely, definitely don't want to ever feel is what he felt. Love to know it, never want to feel it for myself. Because I never want to be considered one that has betrayed Jesus. And let me be clear, I know I let Jesus down repeatedly. Yesterday, the day before, the week before, I know I do. But I also know that he is the Lord God who is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is the same God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. And that his grace is sufficient to cover my transgressions. And so I don't really think that's necessarily what's meant by betraying here. I think, and I'm open to discussion on this one, but Dav spoke last week as he started the series in Hebrews about Christians that give up on or reject Jesus for who he is. And that's what Judas did. The consequences were horrific for Judas. And that's why we must remember from this passage this morning, never to betray the Lord Jesus. And then the last of many things I can highlight from this passage this morning that should warm our hearts on a rainy, and it is properly raining outside, I can see, a rainy, cold morning. This should warm your hearts. Verse 25 tells us that the Lord Jesus will drink again of the fruit of the vine in God's kingdom. The sister passage to this one in Matthew 26 says this, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. He'll drink this celebration with you in the Father's kingdom. This plan, this story, it's a true story and it has an amazing ending. This is genuinely the only time you can say they all lived happily ever after. Because if we trust in Jesus as our saviour, we have joy in knowing where we are headed. Because no matter what we face today, tomorrow, and forget the orange slogan from many years ago, the future is definitely bright. The future is eternity with the Lord. So as we finish this morning, as we come to the table, I want us to remember three things. Having looked at this passage, there's so much more here than just the preamble and the context of the Lord's Supper. We see a saviour who is totally in control. In control of a dangerous, risky rescue plan. One that would cost him his life. And yet he followed it with one purpose in mind. To give us new life with him. It's a life we don't deserve. And our response should be to remember what he's done for us, what it means for us, 
We should remember that we can have faith in every amazing promise he gives and not throw it away by betraying him. And we should remember that it means we have a certain wonderful eternal future. So these three phrases. Remember this, Jesus did what he did to save you on purpose for a purpose. And now your purpose is to thankfully trust, to faithfully obey and to look forward to the day when we can join him in his Father's kingdom.